This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Jay. Welcome to the Fringeworthy and uh, TriTag podcast. No, now it's the TriTag Games podcast. You're right. TriTag Games. TriTag Games. And it's called the TriTag Games podcast because we have enlarged our format to include more than just Fringeworthy. Though Fringeworthy is always going to be an essential part of the TriTag Games podcast, we wanted to let you guys know, uh, and girls, uh, about all of the wonderful products that TriTag has and to how they can enhance your lives either through playing them separately or adding them to your Fringeworthy game. Love the books here. It's a game company. Well, TriTag Games not only has four main RPGs, it also has the entire line of stellar games, which includes a Nightlife, a supernatural role-playing game where you played the creatures of the supernatural, and this was out before White Wolf, and also the Expendables, which was a science fiction troubleshooting type game. Yes, with a lot of anthropomorphic, very okay. space. Anthropomorphic animals as characters. Now, there, of course, there's lots of anthropomorphic characters in FTL 2448 and also Incursion, but this was from Stellar Games, and it's av- all these games are available in PDF for very reasonable prices. So, if you thought that they were out of print, no, they're not. So, try, uh, truck on over to www.tritacgames.com and see what they have. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about what we always talk about, Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy. Today we're going to talk about surviving your transit through the portal. There seems to be a misunderstanding among some of the players about how difficult it is to get useful information about the other side of the portal. Fringeworthy differs from other games that have portals in that whenever you touch the portal, you're making a commitment to going through it. It grabs you and pulls you through. But this is where people get the mistake. They assume that it's grabbing you and yanking you through like your older brother, you know, yanking you <laughs> onto the bus or something. This is a very slow pull. It is enormously powerful. It can pull up to 500 megatons, but it's only pulling at 1 16th of an inch a second. This translates out to a 20-foot cable in an hour. So we're talking about a very slow forced movement through the portal. And this gives us a lot of opportunities to get information from the other side in the time it takes for something to transit through. So there's various ways, but let's start from the beginning. You know, we're talking like team one, they're trying to go through a portal. So Bruce, you're you're Gordon Conrad and you're facing a portal that you have no idea what's on the other side. What you gonna do? 
Well, the first thing I'm going to look at the pylons, because the pylons tell me a lot about the portal and what's on the other side. It tells me what the pressure is, or at least it doesn't tell me exactly, but it tells me whether it's low pressure or high pressure or even dangerously low or high pressure, like vacuum or like the crushing pressure that you might find on Jupiter. Yep. It also tells you the same thing with temperature. It tells us cold or hot or cryogenically cold or molten hot. And by knowing this information, you can say, well, we're just not going to be able to go through this portal because it's just too hostile an environment on the other side. Yep. And we got this information originally from Captain Oates's journal. So he, he actually wrote down what those lights meant. So, we, so this is a gimme to all your players so you can at least have that kind of information handy for you. You look at the lights. They're not blinking. They're not on. That means normal pressure, right? But you have no, but you have no idea what's on the other side, though. Right. Well, that lets you know that uh, the temperature really isn't any lower than about zero degrees, and isn't any higher than, like, let's say, 150 degrees. So that's something that your environmental suit can handle. So the first thing you want to do is get into your environmental suit that IDET has very generously provided for you so that there are a huge investment in training and, uh, and, and the difficulty of finding you in the first place pays off. Yeah, it doesn't go up in smoke quite literally. Yeah, they want you to come back. <laughs> so yeah. they, yeah. they, so th at this point, there, you would, uh, what some people do is they say, okay, well, I'm just going to walk through the portal and if it looks bad, I'm going to try to step back and hope I can. That's a good way to die. That's a good way to lose everything. Now, there's some techniques we're going to go over about ways to keep you from having to do this. But let's say at the beginning you really hadn't thought it through and you said, okay, we need to risk one team member to see what's on the actual other side of the portal. This is the technique that you can try. Because it only pulls you through it one sixteenth of an inch a second, and because the portal will allow you to do any kind of body uh, motion that you want as long as more mass is going through the portal at any second. In other words, more of you is getting through to the other side. So the portal's counting it by your center of gravity. Your center of gravity has to get closer through, to, through the transit each, sec, each fraction of a second. But you can move yourself around to alter, to alter your facing and your your orientation, is that right? Well, sort of like that, but really it, what it comes down to it is it most in most cases it's just you just need more mass going through. Okay? So for example, you could pick up a big rock and stick it in front of you and you know or or other things. A large crate of cowbells. Cowbell. <laughs> more cowbell? More cowbells. We need more cowbells. Yeah. yeah. If you put a lot of mass ahead of you Okay, and then you try to turn around, then it's not going to let it come back through unless more mass has, is getting through the other side than the mass is coming back through the portal. So that's what we talk about, how you, you need to have more mass going through. But this is good because this gives you some opportunities. And the opportunity is that you can walk up to the, to the black interface of the portal and you can bend at the waist and stick your head through and take a good look around and listen, and, but not go any further through. Let the portal slowly pull you through, okay? But not all the way through, just a little bit. Maybe give you maybe 15, 20 seconds of good looking around. You can see what's around. And then what you do is you do what I call the Explore Limbo. 
which is you then arch your head back and pull your and arch your back so that your the main part of your body is going through as your head is going back and you'll find that you can put your head back through the portal while the rest of your body is going through and now you're on the other side and you could tell the people on your side hey this is what I saw this is what's over there now if there's something really bad that's going to take you out, well, then the best thing to do is just to try to get jump through as quickly as possible and jump back. But this is a way of making sure that you can get your head back through and tell them something before the rest of your body gets pulled through. The limbo is a, is a good way of doing it. There are some other ways that work almost as effectively, and that is not quite as fun as the limbo, and that is to sit down and you just put your feet through. And let it pull your feet through or scoot through to the point where you can lean over and stick your head through. At which point you can then, as you sit up, scoot more of your body through and get your head backwards and end up laying flat on your back and the portal will pull you through. Again, slowly, very slowly. It's only moving one sixteenth of an inch. It takes a little practice to be able to contort your body in that way to, to ease your head back while moving your body forward. I imagine it takes a practice to get used to the portal's pacing and how it likes to push things through. Right. And this is something you should be practicing at one of the portals in the French path. Maybe one of the, the uh, pathway portals. Or one of, one of the ones you know leads to a safe location. Right. Like the, the portal from Hatsumi Base onto the airplane platform. That would work fine. This assumes that it's possible to have a portal opening into a hostile environment. But the Termelern are not necessarily any more fireproof or sharp, pointy thing proof than any random human. So I imagine they're not likely to deliberately put a portal where it would be dangerous for them to go through unless either the users had some way to know or unless the portal has been moved or there's been a problem since the last time it was used by Termelern. Well, it's true that since these portals were set up over a, a thousand to even a hundred thousand years ago, a lot of things could have changed on the other side of the portal. There, there could have been a, a volcano come up, the planet could have gone through a climatic change that could have radically changed what the environment is on the other side. So these things could happen. But we are pretty much assume in the game that the Tamelern have the ability to, to interrogate the portal system to get more information mm -hmm. about the other side of the portal than we can from our physical right. uh, testings and looking at the portal. In other words, as John puts it, what we see are the idiot lights. And we know that the portals collect information about the other side because it gifts you with the language of the other side. So it knows how many people are over there. It knows where they are. It knows what their tech levels are. Mm -hmm. It knows en enough information. It has the ability to scan a wide enough area to actually be able to keep track of languages and to mm -hmm. give you a decent understanding, not only of the actual verbal part of the language, but also body movements and things like that. All this is gifted to you into your memory. So the portal system is collecting a great deal of information on the other side. We as explorers just don't have access to it. One more thing to add to that, just just never forget that the Tamelon didn't necessarily put portals in certain places. Uh, this was a mathematical construct and the portal system was following a program and putting portals where they would go due to this, this algorithm. So there are times when the portals would go somewhere 
that was dangerous. I could see a volcano or at the bottom of the ocean just like as a part of the algorithm, not because of continental drift or... Right. And then the Tremelon would move them, but maybe they hadn't gotten to them yet because they were exploring the pathways just like we are. That's possible. But in, in any world where there was originally a old Meller actually working on that world to bring a race to into the Commonwealth, they had ample opportunity to move the portal to a, another location that was better for the Meller to deal with. We can infer from the system itself that there's a way to... to operate the system and get information from the system, but the explorers in the early stages of the game don't have access to that yet. So uh, would it be fair to say uh, in a very late in the time period that uh, they wouldn't need the devices we're talking about, that they would have the ability to query the system about where the portal goes and what's on the other side? Yes. I would think in the in the late campaign where they're in the process of reestablishing the Commonwealth, they would have the information that they need in order to either have access to devices that could interface with the fringe system or be able to create them themselves. All right. Uh, so what we're talking about here is really the kind of devices that you, you're, you're using just as you begin learning about the fringe path system and where it goes and how it works. Well, in the early campaign and the middle campaign, yes. Right. Okay. But the important thing here, from my point of view, is that we want to encourage people not to put their characters at risk when they don't have to. Mm. So okay. you know, this first step, like I said, does put one character at risk, but at least we don't have the situation where someone steps through the portal and doesn't come back, and then they all look at each other and they say, well, the GM's not going to get do a total party kill, so let's go on through the portal. I'm sure it's fine. Well, then the next question is, is the GM going to do a total party kill or not? But th I think that's a different yeah. question. Um, yeah. the, the question is moot because there are other techniques besides what we just said in order to get information on the other side of the portal. Well, once you've learned that you can do this this trick of leaning back and so forth, then the, the next thing is probably the bungee camera, which is one of Bruce's inventions. Right. And this is something that doesn't require you going through the portal at all. And not you physically, that is. When we say bungee camera, it also can be bungee sample case, bungee, you know, whatever. It's basically you put you put something at the end of a bungee cord that you whip on through, and then when you coming back, you let go. No bungee test subjects, yeah. please. It's an elastic cord that after you after it reaches the limit of its of its elastic, is going to bounce back toward the portal. And it'll stay fringery because things stay fringery at least ten minutes. So it will, it will stay fringe and come right back through and transfer right back to the other side so you can get your sample or your, or your photograph. Why do we go to the disc camera then, which is the next concept? Right. So the, the disc camera, going on all the principles we've already talked about, you know, with masks going through and masks coming back out, uh, what you do is you, you make a, a big, and you can use wood, you could use plastic, it doesn't matter what the material is, uh, the lighter the better probably, and you take a, a big disc and you start that through the portal and then you have a camera on the disc and you spin the disc slowly through you know through the portal and the disc will continue to go through um, at, at, the, at the slow rate but things can revolve around through it so you could you put a camera on there you spin it through there it takes a picture you bring it back out you pull the camera off you could put multiple cameras on there uh, you could also put a camera on there that will take multiple shots. Or even motion pictures. Sure, or motion picture, but it's, you have to do, make sure it's a mechanical system that's doing it. Right. To me, this seems like 
the easiest and safest method. Um, matter of fact, if you you know you put this disc in there and you start spinning it around and parts of it come out melted, you really don't need to do much more. You know, it's cracked and frostbitten and stuff. You might not need to do that. As a matter of fact, you could do other things on the disc too. You could put on a, a Geiger counter of some kind that maybe uh, keep its highest read. Uh, more like a radiation badge. That sure. Be- yeah. Okay. A radiation badge, um, a chemical sampler of some kind. A thermometer, right? You can put all kinds of stuff on there. Acidity of the atmosphere with um, a litmus paper. That's it. Yeah, litmus paper, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, like it. yeah or, or, or you can put on yeah. there things that, you know, I call wet right. reactions. You know, basically a little cylinder that, as it goes to the air, it, it basically has some sort of chemical on a paper, like a litmus, like litmus paper, but it does a wet reaction with the air and changes the paper color at that point. So you can see. So you now, can see. I, always, I always have a problem with this. And Bruce, you, you'll be able to correct me because I'll probably be wrong. But like, You're you wrong. couldn't like put a bird on this thing, right? Because it wouldn't transit. It would. Yeah. Okay. So you yeah, touch that, it for that's... a certain period of time, it becomes fringe worthy for that period of time. Yeah, you glue its little feet down with super glue. <laughs> no, 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 you put it in a cage. Oh, really? <laughs> well, Stay you know, point. at the point where you're asking, is this going to be instant death world? Here, little canary, you go find out for us. But it may not die, so you don't need to glue its feet to it. That's it. true, but we're going to bread him up real nice just in case. <laughs> so, a barbecue sauce, yeah. Right. <laughs> actually, a canary, actually, it would be not be a bad idea, especially if you had a world where the CO2 is just near danger for humans, but it's a danger level for the birds. He'll pass out. He'll be okay when he comes back through, but if he's passed out, you go, we want to put our environmental suits for that place on the other side, Yes. There are better ways of finding that out, like a little spring-loaded canister to bring you back some air. So sure. You- <laughs> I agree. All those who are members of PETA, Tritex Games does not support the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do not. Right. No, imaginary <laughs> animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yeah. You can't talk about using gerbils now. <laughs> right. No, no. No bungee hamsters like going there. Yeah, but yes, all manner of samples can be placed on this spinning, this yeah. this rotating. I shouldn't say spinning, rotating platform that is going to be slowly pulled through the portal as is normal for a portal transit. And this is where the uh, John, the answer to your question is, and that is, is that when you get done, you still end up with a platform, yep. a a disc that's yep. going to be on the other side of the portal marking where the portal is. A bungee camera leaves nothing on the other side. Everything comes back through. So that's the advantage of using a bungee camera over this spinning, this rotating disc idea. Only fringe-worthy people can impart fringe-worthiness to other objects or objects touching or connected to that object. So if I just put a disc in and start spinning and then let go, and then I see my and then my little air canister thing is going through to collect, to collect some air. It'll go through, close up, come back, and it'll have a fine grade vacuum inside because it didn't bring the air back with it. Wow! And the reason is is because the sample container is cannot confer fringe worthiness on anything that it collects. 
by itself. However, if someone is holding uh, some part that's connected to it on the other side, like say the disc. Yeah, if you're manually turning the disc and keeping your hand on it, you're importing fringeworthiness to the canister. And the canister therefore can confer it by association to whatever sample it takes. Oh, hey, by the same means, you couldn't bring back any radioactive material. You could bring back something that had been altered by radioactive yeah. material, like, yep. you know, like 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 the badge, exactly. but you couldn't bring back, like you couldn't have anything that would collect radioactive samples because when they came back through, they wouldn't be radioactive anymore. Yeah, that is correct. Because they get turned yeah. to their most stable form, you could analyze the sample yeah. and say, what is, in, what is in its most stable form? What could it have been before it got converted? Right, you yeah. can make an inference. As you said, if you went and, and did a chemical test and it, it was a chemical test for iodine, let's say, and it, it proved positive, and then you bring it through, and there is no iodine, it's something else in the sample now, then you say, well, that used to be iodine, and now it's something else. It was probably radioactive iodine. Yep. Or it's iodine and something else, and you can infer that way, that way too. Right. And there's a lot of quick tests you can do as well. It, what was the other one? The slide sample, which was an interesting one. Jay, Jay, what's, what's the slide sampler? All right, the slide sampler is kind of like the disk sampler, the disk camera that we were talking about, but a little more simple in execution. What we do is we take, say, a 10-foot piece of uh, PVC. We cut it so that it's open on the upper side, okay? We put a sample container or a camera with a wind-up timer mechanism at the front end of the uh, slide, at, of our gutter-shaped slide, and we stick that through. We're holding it level. We, we put that through the portal. The portal begins to pull the uh, PVC, our PVC slider, through. After a certain amount of time, enough to get good pictures, good samples, then we tilt it up and slide our sample, our sample containers and camera back down the slide and through the portal back into our hands. Now, PVC is going through the portal no matter what, but PVC is cheap. And so we can just uh, we can afford to throw that away to get a good idea of whether or not there's air on the other side of it, whether or not the uh, temperatures or pressures are going to be uh, damaging to people, or whether or not people can actually go out there and, and live and, and, and work. Okay, then. Bada-bing. Yeah. As time went along, we realized that you need to take a lot of samples of different things and doing these things one at a time. And the disk is great, but you can't get soil samples. And or you can't test other things, really, you want to be able to take like 360-degree pictures. So that's when the wind-up was created. And the wind-ups were created from the Japanese Karakuri robots. Karakuri robots are these little tea servers. They're made out of bamboo. They're wind-ups. You put a teapot on, on, in their hands, they run over to somebody, you take the tea off, you, have, you, you, drink, you serve yourself some tea, put it back on, it turns around and goes back. Entirely mechanical and made out of wood. So some of the initial wind-ups were actually either wood or even aluminum karakuris that would run through, do something, turn around, and come back. Later, when the Victorians saw those things, they came back with their wind-up, which is much more impressive and a lot heavier. <laughs> Are we going to have it so that the Victorians invented everything having to do with fringe exploration? No, they're just better at doing clockwork stuff. <laughs> well, that's true. That's where most of their expertise is going to be. And they were on the fringe pass six months ahead of us. Therefore, they had a chance of inventing these things a little earlier, especially the very simple devices. Right. 
Now, the one thing that you didn't mention, John, is the same problem, and that is yeah. that when you send the windup through, you can't just send the yeah. windup through and say, hey, take some samples, because then it won't bring back anything. So what you have to do is you have to attach yep. a, a thin wire cable to the back of the windup. So as it goes through, you feed the cable out. And it can take its because that way you're still connected to it, and therefore you're still conferring your fringeworthiness to it and anything that it collects. And then it turns around and it runs itself back in, and at which point you could just drop the cable and it'll run through and, and get pulled back through because it'll go through a loop and come back through. I originally thought of this as a way of powering the windup. Once the windup itself clears the, the portal, it's a little catapult on it, and it throws the line back through. And it's going through a pulley that goes through a step-down motor, big step-down gearing, so that that one sixteenth of an inch pull uh, with a million torque basically runs the thing, <laughs> runs r runs the uh, actually a step-up motor, and you know step-up gearing and runs the entire windup as it's pulling it back through again. It would have to be a pretty heavy windup for that to work, John. Yeah, we're, so, we're talking we're talking Victorians, right? So, so so how heavy do you think that device would have to be? Well, you'd be around like 100, 100 pounds. How do you determine what size one of these things has to be? Like that uh, Japanese uh, mechanical device you were talking about earlier. I'm sure it's a pretty small thing, but it only does one thing. It carries a teapot, right? It carries something through, stops, turns around, comes back. That's basically all it does. Ah. Right. But see, all these devices, there could be separate individual devices, each doing their own little thing, yep. using their own little wind-up clockwork mechanisms to, to take the very samples, the sound uh, samples, the atmospheric samples, uh, the temperature samples, the litmus samples. All those things could be combined into a very sophisticated package that it could do. A mechanical engineering student from MIT who was found to be fringeworthy would be dragging an entire cartload of, of uh, uh, clock springs and Legos behind him to build these things. He'd probably make it out of Legos. One benefit of actually using the cable system is that you can let it sit there, like, like Bruce said, 20 feet of cable will give you an hour. It also gives you one other thing, too. If, you, if it's also powering the system, after 10 minutes, electricity works. And now you can start doing things on your side you can't do with just pure mechanical. Your Geiger car now works. Your all these other things start working, and now which is why it gets a little bit more complex as you can provide more power and more duration on the other side. So, so we're gonna have to get one of those little drinking birds and put it on the laptop on the on button, so in ten minutes it'll power up. No, it could still be doing that by a clockwork mechanism. Oh yeah. Wait. Let, let's. Uh, what what is the time limit for something can, holding a fringe-worthy charge? Ten minutes. It's ten minutes if it's by itself. But as long as you're holding on to a, something that's connected to it, like a cable, and you're feeding it through, it'll go on forever. So a clockwork bot that's designed to trundle out through the portal, take samples, or take pictures, and then turn around and trundle back while we're transferring uh, more mass through, will yep. come right back through and deposit all the samples in our lap. Is that right? Yep. You still want to do the quick samples, too, the ones that you would normally do if you didn't have this method of keeping you there for more than 10 minutes. Because the, the other samples have to be taken back to Hatsumi or some nearby location that has a, they, can, they can do the tests you need to do that you really can't do. Unless you bring along some sort of CSI van with you when you go on your trips. And, and it would have to be a steampunk CSI van because it, nothing electronic is going to work uh, yeah, yeah. On, the, on the fringe paths. 
Right, but what John was saying is that it, you could have it, it partially, initially being totally mechanical, but once 10 minutes has gone by, then your solar cell is going to provide power to your little computer drives, and this thing's going to boot up, and it can run all kinds of very sophisticated tests, print them out. That's why I was talking about the little yeah. uh, novelty drinking right. bird placed right. on top of the laptop to hit the on button. There's actually a wind-up power source that will run for a half an hour, and it powers a radio, so that kicks in and starts running things. You actually don't even need the, the photocells because you may be in a situation where it's nighttime and uh, photocells, still probably all mechanical, but at least after okay. 10 minutes, it's now you can run things that you can't do, you couldn't do before. Uh, you know what they'd say, a day without sunshine yeah. is like night. Right, so what we're saying here, folks, is that the wind-up that's in uh, the Fringeworthy base game, the manual, is not the only... Uh, the most sophisticated wind-up there can be. I'm sure that at some point someone's going to sit down and put together a truly amazing wind-up. Now, one of the reasons we initially didn't do that was because we were trying to be very covert. We wanted this thing to go through, take samples, and roll back within 30 seconds. If you have something sitting out there 10, 15 minutes, this could be a bad thing. If you're in an urban situation where it could be observed, then you're exposing yourself. This is where you kind of want to use some things like use the disc camera or even the bungee camera to get a quick peek on the other side to say, what's my environment? Am I in the middle of nowhere? Well, fine, take all the time in the world. But if I'm someplace where people can see me, then I need to take shorter samples in shorter periods of time. So it's just part of your toolkit. You have to decide based upon what you find on the other side, what you really want to check out. I just uh, had a native in my mind. Look, mommy, the neat toy I found. Who's Idet and where'd you get this toy? So folks, as you can see, there's lots of techniques that allows you to get useful information, critical information that'll save your skin so you don't have to die just to find out what's on the other side of the portal. Use these techniques uh, and, and use it to enrich your game and to provide your the players and the characters what they need in order to really make good plans for their exploration. They'll thank you for it and you'll enjoy the game a lot better if you're not losing your characters all the time. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern. One of the other games that is part of the TriTech game group is Bureau 13 Stalking the Night Fantastic. A couple years ago, an OGL or D20 version was put out. I had the unique honor heading that up. And Bureau 13... The well, yeah, it was, it was a shock to me then. Uh, Bureau 13 is technically the 13th Bureau of the Justice Department, created during the Civil War by President Lincoln... But he noticed that not only were there supernatural threats within the Union, but also supernatural beings and forces being brought over by immigrants, leprechauns and whatnot from Ireland. And so President Lincoln, who was rather into the supernatural himself, and even in real life, he was known to have a liking for it. He decided to create the 13th Bureau of the Justice Department. Bureau 13 had it rough because they were fighting just with regular late 19th century firearms. They actually did not involve supernatural forces until, I believe, the mid-late 1880s. 
over the course of 150 years, they started developing and finding, through various alliances, better magic, better technology, better weaponry, better armor, better sources of information, and containing said supernatural threats. And in the modern day, they have quite the network and arsenal to do so. A pivotal moment in Bureau 13, however, was the massacre of 77, when I believe 99% of all of the Bureau's top command personnel and like 80% of their field agents were wiped out in one massive concerted effort. So the Bureau decided to start recruiting from Mr. and Mrs. Joe America. Anyone who has survived a supernatural experience, relatively intact, was given the chance to become part of the Bureau as a new agent. That is one of the facets I think separates Bureau 13 from other games of the modern day horror and conspiracy genre is that most of these games, you're playing somebody who already from the get go, they're trained to fight the, you know, the supernatural, like Hunter the Reckoning or Call of Cthulhu, they're trained investigators. Most of the people that are in Bureau 13 are your housewives, soccer moms, garbage men, teachers who just happen to be in the wrong place at the right time. Now, how the Bureau connects to the game Fringeworthy in-game is that I believe in the 1980s, IDET came upon Positive 13 Prime, their designation for the Bureau 13 world, or what in the portal books is known as Paranorm Earth. 20 years before whatever time you set as the time in which Bureau is operating, 20 years before they ran into IDET. So IDET had higher technology better weaponry, better computer faculties. So the Bureau and IDET decided to have a trade in technology and information exchange. Bureau ended up getting some very nice technology out of this, and in return, the Bureau gave information, okay, this is what this world is about, we have this, we have that. This is what a vampire is. And also, in the Bureau 13 OGL version, I created yet another link. There is a character in the Bureau 13 D20 game. Her name is Colonel Shea Talbot, and she is the liaison between the Bureau Earth and Earth Prime. She operates on Bureau 13. That is her post. But she coordinates anything that has to do with Fringeworthy that occurs on Bureau 13 Earth. You have to go through her. She has IDET training. She also has TAS training. She's originally from the Victorian Earth, then transferred to Earth Prime, and then made her own post there. So there is a connection. If you are playing Frenchworthy and you were to get to Bureau 13, that would be a way to go about it. Now, Bureau 13, as I said, is a modern-day horror conspiracy game because you're dealing with secret conspiracies and things mm-hmm. that go up in the night. You stalk the night. Fantastic. Two of the things that I see that set Bureau 13 above other games of that genre, as I said, one, you are playing a ordinary person who is thrust into a very extraordinary circumstance. I liken that to Fringeworthy in that you're a normal person wandering around doing whatever, and all of a sudden you're found to be Fringeworthy. Well, in Bureau 13, you're an ordinary person wandering around living your life, and you bump into something that you thought was a matter of fiction. Therefore, you are given the very unique opportunity to at least hide it from the, from the general public or fight it if need be. The characters in this game are not in what is known as a Lovecraftian situation. If you happen to get out and you're gibbering, that's a good day for the character. No. The characters, 
if that happens to them, that's a bad day. Bureau 13, usually, when you stop the menace or at least hide it or you take care of the situation, that's a good day for you. And also, Bureau 13 has a very rich game history. I helped comprise the timeline from various previous Bureau 13 products. It really plays well into the modern day world where you see certain events happen like, oh, let's say 1929. Wall Street has its Black Friday, I believe it was, or Black Tuesday, because a demon from hell tampered with the stock market. Things like that. History is a lie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And the Weekly World News is telling you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Except about Elvis. Yeah. The game world is incredibly rich and Frenchworthy ties into it. In the Portals book, there is a list of the eight portals that surround that prime. Norwin, Pennsylvania, Vancouver, the bottom of Lake Superior. Needless to say, there will be lights on in that portal because that is the deepest lake. Therefore, pressure would be a little high. Uh, Normandy? No, that they would produce a warp on the edge of the lake. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, the nearest edge. Yeah, my mistake. Salem, London, the Australian Outback, and this one I always found humorous. Epcot Studio in Disney World. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there's an attraction. And so if you are a IDET agent and you are playing, you're in a fringe-worthy game and you decide to travel to that world, you can even tune in and contact the Bureau that way. Or in this case, you would contact Colonel Talbot and say, okay, you know, we're here. You can send us a contact. You know, we're here for this reason. The good thing about these other genres is that, or these other games in the genre is that you can actually use these other games to help enhance your Bureau 13 game. I have quite a few PDFs, and I mean just if uh, the people who made D20 Modern, uh, Urban Arcana and D20 Dark Matter, both of them have things which can help enhance your Bureau 13 campaign with skills and beats and weapons and oh, yeah. spells. Is the D20 setting where they have players as part of a group Hunting the Supernatural. Is that, that part of the OGL or is that part of the uh, product identity? I don't know if I'm allowed to mention. No, uh, fair use. They have a thing called Department 7, which essentially is an yeah. analog of the Bureau. Yes, they are mentioned in both Urban Arcana and D20 Dark Matter. And D20 Modern, the source book. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And, well, Urban Arcana was originally just a campaign model within D20 Modern, and then later they made the full Urban Arcana campaign book. Right. Yeah. So the core book in D20 Modern is Urban Arcana Light with all the uh, crunch for the system in there. Yes, yeah, it's just maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 pages is the Urban Arcana campaign model. And then they just, let's, right. you know, now you're drinking from the fire hose with a full campaign book. But they also have a full, well, not a full, but they have quite a bit of a bestiary that you could use as part of your uh, B13 campaign there's there's vampires, there's oh, yes, werewolves, there. there's goblins, there's ogres. There's all kinds of things that they've you know that they're that's in the game. And of course, since it is D twenty, you can crack open any of your D and D books and use any of the monsters from them too to be the one to be the monster that's the source of the problem for the mission. Oh, there's even uh, the D twenty Menace Manual, which has even more, and that's more of a bent towards supernatural creatures. Things like I, I like that book. Oh, yeah, yeah. I use that many a time when I play test my uh, B13 D20 game. Also, with uh, technology, the D20 firearms books like Weapons Locker, which John was kind enough to mail me a copy years ago because he had an extra copy. Modern Firearms from Green Ronin Publishing. 
Both of those are very useful in a B-13 campaign. Oh yeah, I have both of those. Certain elements of D20, of D20 Future can also be successfully oh, yeah. imported to a B-13 game. Uh, gadgets for weapons and things like that. I deem Bureau 13, their tech level because of time travels and aliens and extra dimensional. I deem B-13's tech level, okay, straight Earth PL-5. PL-6 is considered cutting edge. Bureau 13, PL-7, PL-8 is cutting edge, which means if you want to spend a little extra money, you can make PL-8 stuff with the Bureau 13 backing. Let's say you go to a lab and you start working on something. You can make something of PL-8. And that's mainly because all the various alien technology they've captured and taken over and stuff from the future or different futures have showed up and landed in their, in their doorstep. And then there's the magic on top of that. There is the D20 modern campaign setting magic, which allows you arcane and divine spells up to 5th level. So you could use the D&D magic level, but then you'd have to take into account an intermediary book like my first favorite, Second World War. It would also tend to break the game world if too much magic was running loose. Um, But there's also FX, like uh, uh, what they call FX in D20 modern, like psionics and other things. Super science, perhaps. There is a rule. And I use this in my campaign from that the aforementioned Second World Sourcebook from Second World Simulations. Ah, I just it, got that one myself. Yes, it is the world resistance where you have to make a caster level check and the world resistance rating is 15 plus the spell level times 2. Now, spell penetration feats work for this and if you don't make the spell, the spell goes and it cuts out. However, if you do cast it, and you can even learn to take 10 on this roll. After a while, if you're high enough level, you can take 10. And in a non-stressful situation, you can cast the spell. You can't do it in combat. But you could use the D&D system if you use that system. And then, you know, if you wanted to run a higher-powered magic level for your Bureau 13 game. Now, for me, that's personal preference. I, I do it that way because I prefer the spells, but... Yeah, there's a, there's kind of a range of what kind of game you're running in Bureau 13 between something like, you know, X Files, where it's always up for debate whether that was actually magic or not, or something you know way on the other side like MIBs, where uh, you have to use neuralizers on everybody so that not everybody has it. Well, well guys, don't forget that um, a really good supplement for um, for Bureau 13, they did do a Call of Cthulhu D20. Yes, so, they did. Remember that so you- was. A- Thick book, I believe. Yes. So you you can grab a lot from that because while you may not want to run that kind of campaign, you know that that level of uh, of heaviness, um, you know where where surviving uh, surviving with your brains intact is considered an unbelievable win. You still could take some of the creatures from it, some of the items from it, some of the uh, magical trappings, uh, and I think they would translate into Bureau Thirteen quite well. Oh yes. I have a list of other games that could be added to, you know, help augment a Bureau 13 campaign or to steer it a certain way. Well, now, we're talking about things that are, like, native to D20 to use for B13 D20, but isn't there a B13 Savage Worlds coming out? Yes. John and Blix have been running games in that. Mm -hmm. And I know that John and Blix know that system. I've only skimmed Savage Worlds, so you'll have to forgive my ignorance on that. I admit that freely. When I first bought GURPS, I bought GURPS for two reasons. One was to fix what was wrong with FASA's Star Trek system, and the other one was to run Bureau 13 in a slightly less complicated system. And that was in, like, 1986. 
And so my first Hero 13 game was actually done in GURPS, and I moved it to Hero System in 1991. Now you see you're trying to move to less complicated systems. Uh, <laughs> the, thing is with, the thing is with Hero System, you can yeah. run it stripped down. You could throw away most of the book, but you have some of the crunch there if you need it. And I like the way it described them. Some things like uh, charisma mm-hmm. as a presence mm-hmm. in, in Hero System. The way it had like fatigue and, and, and those kind of energy points for people to spend on magic and powers and things. I also like the way Hero System has psionic and magic integrating with the characters. So you're not getting this hugely overpowered. The mage casts a disintegrate spell, save it. 842 or die it worked a little bit better for me in that one but mostly i threw away most of the stuff about uh, combat mods and and all sorts of things to run it in a real strip down you know just keep it moving roll some dice and tell me what you do kind of a mode and you can do that with almost any system one of the great strengths in b13 as it's been depicted over the years in the various editions is that there is no one true version of anything you can have a dozen different vampires. You can have a hundred different types of elves. You can have magic systems that are completely different from each other existing on the same world. Uh, the, there are rifts in time and space. There are uh, alien incursions. There's devices that have been left behind by ancient astronauts and, and forgotten gods. If you have a reason to have something in an adventure, that's enough justification to yep. have it. Which is, I think, is a strength. If you want to create a world that has a coherent magic system in it, in the sense that this is the way magic works on this world, uh, unless that's the way you really want to run your Bureau 13 game, Bureau 13, as the default uh, presentation of it, doesn't do that. It says, hey, all stories are true. Your aliens can be grays, they can be blobs, they can be red-skinned beauties. It can be anything. It's up to you as the GM to decide what you want your protagonist to be, and you can make a justification for it inside of the Bureau 13 universe. That's one of its great strengths, and it's one of the reasons it's had such durability and and longevity. I noticed that when I first read the 92 version, they had for uh, ghouls three or four versions. Vampires. They included Oriental hopping vampires as well as the European ones and the American ones. In the OGL, the rich added vampire brats, which were children that were turned into vampires. Now we can add Twilight vampires now to the list if we want to. Oh, no, we can't. Yes, we can because they're easier to shoot in the dark. Just lay into them. <laughs> Blow their stuff right up. Richard has put out the the new uh, supplement, Bureau 13 Extreme, and it has quite a bit on various types of creatures like uh, constructs and elves of various kinds and 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 all kinds of manner of of bugaboos. So you ought to check that out. When I got to work on Bureau 13 D20, I added things that I knew, uh, allies I had. Laura Lulu Kohler and Sarah Bunker are both friends of mine. And I added them as allies. Well, yeah, I added was um, uh, Mike Bonkowski, agent of OSHA. In my game, it started out with a mix of, of older B-13 agents and uh, cops in this uh, small town uh, police force. And the agents were kind of helping the, the, this group of cops learn how to deal with the supernatural with the idea that the skills and, and abilities to deal with supernatural threats should be dispersed among the population although kept on the QT. Eventually that mutated until they were all inducted into the Bureau and they, they were put into an action team anyway. 
But in the fictional city we used as our setting, most people suspect there's something up because every so often really stupid things happen. And it was hard to explain away, you know, after after the zombie attack, it was kind of hard to explain away all the stuff he's coming to life. Eventually, the secret kind of got out. The good, the good thing I like about in the 93, 92 edition and in the OGL edition is that you have what Bruce listed, the artifacts left by aliens of ancient food, I believe, is one of them. Time travelers, uh, dimensional travelers, of which IDET can be a part of. Strange animals, vampire. And it's a D100 chart. And you even have an option, like if you roll 98, 99, or 100, you can combine them. You can have interdimensional vampires who find a ancient alien device and activate it. And, and Bureau 13 lends itself to be just a little tongue-in-cheek. Just a bit. One of the random encounters I wrote up for my uh, game I ran back in the 80s was The Mob and Sea Monsters. I believe the one that my one friend, Brian Chesky, had Nazi SS baby werewolves from the deep. deep. <laughs> okay, that's a little too much. He needs to turn the blender down. <laughs> No, mafia, ver- mafia versus sea monsters I can, I can buy. That thing with the scales. It yeah. got into my profits. It's got yeah. to sleep with the fishes. But boss, it does that already. <laughs> but one of the things I like to do with the game is to make it so that the players can identify with the characters over the long term. And so sometimes I find that that really kicking down the fourth wall and sticking the tongue too far in the cheek breaks that. And so uh, my normal way of rolling a Bureau 13 game would be a kind of a more muted, less uh, colorful version, but something with a long-term plot to it and something that I would hope the uh, players could buy into as a, long-term, as, as a long-term story. But, you know, on the other hand, flying uh, MiGs and F-16s up against an alien invasion sounds like a hoot, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, you can sit there and add a little bit of... I mean, the game, as I said, has the tongue-in-cheek element, so you can have, you know, a bit of fun with it. So what I said is true, that literally anything can be in your Bureau 13 game, and they can come in multiple varieties and still be considered, if not canon, but uh, non-breaking of the, the world. You never know, as a Bureau 13 agent, everything about what you're up against. You can't just say, oh, well, it's a vampire, so I know that this is going to work, and this is going to work, and this is going to work, because it may not. And that's one of the big strengths of it, and it keeps the players on their toes and keeps the game fresh because you're not always up against the same old orcs and up against the same old vampires and werewolves. So you, you have a wealth of Hammer movies to pull plots from. <laughs> oh, All yeah. sorts of movies. Oh, my God. And TV shows for, for days. Well, sor- sources for adventures in Bureau 13 is a whole nother uh, uh, topic. Yeah. Uh, 14 or 15 <laughs> podcasts. Group of orcs living in a trailer park. I mean, you can't just go in and waste them. Oh, yeah, by right. <laughs> That's something we discussed about whether there is a lawyers for the supernatural. They're allies of, of the Bureau. Well, okay, not allies, but neutral, yeah. Um, mm. I, I, mean, I actually had to make up a 13th district court. There is actually literally a 13th district court, so I made I got that one wrong. But basically a, a group of lawyers and judges who've had contact with the supernatural who act as the judicial wing of Bureau 13 cycle. There was much discussion whether supernatural actually have rights under the Constitution or not. Well, if you go on to the Bureau 13 Yahoo group and you search for the words test case, 
you'll find there was a whole string of message uh, strings where we set up one case after another and saying, okay, so how would you judge this person? Were they within their rights as a species to do what they did? You know, were they out of line? Do they have to be destroyed? Or can you come to some kind of accommodation with them? And it was a very lively discussion, and I would highly recommend it for anybody who wants to just even think about this particular aspect of the game, as in, do supernatural creatures have rights? That's part of the fun. Unlike D&D, it's not like, oh, uh, the scrolls say they're evil, so kill them all. Yeah. Uh, you can think about a more nuanced approach if you want to. Or if the GM and the players are into that, light them up and hope that uh, the uh, the yeah. evidence dispersal teams can cover for all the uh, weapons fire. That's where Mike Bankowski's king from, character came from. How would you work on a black project? And he actually told me how he would work on a black project, and that's where the thought came up of, He's OSHA, and I bet the Bureau really needs OSHA for a lot of things. <laughs> I, I really had a lot of fun making that character up after you described him, because I had to do with the D20 stats for all the new characters that came in. And yeah. that was a fun one, of course, making one for Rich. Yeah, making a D20 character for your boss. Yeah, no pressure. Okay, uh, Bureau 13, Stalking the Night, fantastic. As I said, it is a game of modern-day horror and conspiracy which has a richly detailed game world, has a very strong connection to Fringeworthy, and will provide years of entertainment in a really good campaign. Anything and everything is possible. TriTechGames.com, there is the original, the, the 92 version and the D20 OGL version. Which we recommend until the uh, Savage Worlds version comes out. World yeah, Savage Worlds, get off my lawn. Uh, Bureau 13, Brass and Steam. Next year, hopefully, I'll be working on that as well. Yep. So until next time... Thanks, Trav. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook.